of Nurse Practitioners, I'm your host, Nurse Practitioner and Director of Education, Eve Roberts, and this is MP Pulse, the voice of the Nurse Practitioner. Welcome to MP Pulse, AMP's monthly podcast bringing unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to MPs and our patients. As always, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new conversations with nurse practitioners and healthcare leaders from across the nation. I'm excited to announce that NP Pulse podcast listeners may claim CE credit for this program through July 2024. After you listen to the podcast, simply go to amporg forward slash CE Center, register for this activity, then complete the post-test and evaluation. In 2020, 670,000 deaths in the United States were directly related to hypertension. Almost half of all adults in the country have hypertension or are taking medication to control high blood pressure. However, only one in four adults have their hypertension under control. On this podcast, we are joined by nurse practitioners Dr. Leslie Davis and Dr. Midge Bowers to discuss resistant hypertension. Dr. Midge Bowers is a professor at Duke University School of Nursing and lead faculty for the cardiology specialty. Dr. Bowers is a nurse practitioner in the same-day access clinic for heart failure at Duke and has extensive experience in the care of patients with cardiovascular disease. She has published and written several chapters related to assessment and clinical management of cardiovascular disease, as well as presenting to local, regional, national, and international audiences. Dr. Leslie Davis is an Associate Professor of Nursing at UNC Chapel Hill. She has maintained a part-time clinical practice in cardiology since becoming a nurse practitioner. Her research focuses on improving self-care behaviors in women and men with cardiovascular conditions, including improving symptom recognition and interpretation in those with a history of acute coronary syndrome. Dr. Davis is nationally recognized for her leadership and expertise in cardiology by the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, and the Preventative Cardiovascular Nurses Association. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome our experts, Dr. Midge Bowers and Dr. Leslie Davis. Let's start with Dr. Bowers. How do you define resistant hypertension? Thank you so much for having me today. So based on the 2018 American Heart Association scientific statement, resistant hypertension is defined as a blood pressure that remains elevated above the patient's targeted goal despite the concurrent use of three antihypertensive drug classes. Most commonly, they are a long-acting calcium channel blocker, a renin-angiotensin system or RAS blocker, such as an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, and a diuretic. Now, the antihypertensive drug should be prescribed at the maximum or maximally tolerated daily doses. Resistant hypertension also includes those patients whose blood pressure achieves target values on four or more antihypertensive medications. Leslie, do you have anything to add about resistant hypertension and how it's defined? Well, first of all, thank you very much, Eve and Midge, for the opportunity to participate in this NP Pulse podcast for such an important topic. As you know from the introduction, work in a hypertensive clinic. So when I think about resistant hypertension, I think about there's two points to make relevant to how we define it. First is to think about why we define resistant hypertension in this way. As nurse practitioners, we know that uncontrolled hypertension places individuals in higher risk for mortality, dying, or morbidity, cardiovascular disease. We also know that uncontrolled hypertension, if you have it, you're more likely to have a history of side effects from lots of antihypertensive meds to have a secondary cause for hypertension And overall, you need a specialized approach to evaluate hypertension, especially if it's uncontrolled. So back to the question, I sort of divide patients who have resistant hypertension in two groups. 
The first is how you define them. Those with uncontrolled resistant hypertension, which you mentioned, patients with blood pressures that remain higher than the goal, despite being on three or more antihypertensive meds. So they're the uncontrolled. But also that second type you mentioned from the literature, what I call the controlled resistant hypertension. They're the group that sure their blood pressure meets a goal, but it's taking four or more medications to get there. Both of these types of patients need further evaluation, and we're going to look into those reasons. Midge, can you talk about how common resistant hypertension is and who's likely to have it? I think it's more common than we really think it is, right? Resistant hypertension can occur in up to 12 to 15% of adults that we already treat in our practices for hypertension. But some clinics report up to 18%. And those are clinics like the ones you work in, like those specialty clinics, because we're really looking for it, or in my practice, in a cardiology clinic focused on heart failure. So all in all, about one in five or even up to 10 patients can have resistant hypertension, depending on the population you serve. Now, Risk factors that are associated with resistant hypertension include some demographic factors, including patients who identify as Black, patients who identify as male, and older adults. There are also some common comorbid health conditions that we all treat that are associated with resistant hypertension. And those are patients with obesity, those who may have established left ventricular hypertrophy, albuminuria, um, individuals with diabetes mellitus, chronic kidney disease, and obstructive sleep apnea. In fact, I think a key pearl from this discussion is that up to 60 to 84% of individuals with resistant hypertension also have sleep apnea. So for those of you that work in a sleep clinic, it would be something for you to specifically look at as well. Now let's take a moment to talk about physiology. There are physiologic alterations that are, occur in individuals with resistant hypertension. These folks are more likely to have vascular disease, such as peripheral arterial disease or carotid artery atherosclerosis, because we know associated with resistant hypertension, there's endothelial dysfunction, reduction in arterial wall compliance, and a high systemic vascular resistance. So one of the things that folks may not be familiar with is the idea of blood pressure dipping. Now, normally, blood pressures get lower at night. We call them dippers. And all of us, our blood pressure should dip down at night while we're sleeping. In patients with resistant hypertension, they are not only less likely to dip, referred to as non-dipping, or they may actually reverse dip. So their blood pressure actually rises during the night. And this is associated with increased sympathetic nervous system activity at night. So all of these things are more pronounced in resistant hypertension. So I think, Leslie, how do you know when somebody has truly resistant hypertension or just difficult to control blood pressure? You know, Midge, that's a great question. You know, we when they come to our clinic, a hypertensive clinic, we first, they're coming there mostly because they're uncontrolled hypertension, as you mentioned, but also maybe they're on four or five meds for the hypertension. So we do need to, and according to the literature and the scientific statements, to sort of the fork in the road is, are they, quote, difficult to control, unquote, versus truly resistant hypertension? And first, what we do is let's make sure the numbers are real. And how do we do that is we make sure that when we measure the blood pressure, both in the office or wherever you are in the setting, that it's being measured accurately. And a second thing I, I want to talk about is getting out of the office readings. The Canadian guidelines and even the European guidelines, part of the diagnosis is that they need to obtain blood pressures in addition to the clinic setting outside the office. So when we think about blood pressures being measured accurately, this may be old school and going back, but in fact, there was a scientific statement in 2019 
to revisit this topic. I think about three things. One is preparing the patient. You want to make sure it's been 30 minutes since they've had any caffeine, exercise, or tobacco. Now, let's hope that no one's smoking cigarettes or using tobacco, but the reality, especially where you and I live, Midge, in North Carolina, a lot of people use tobacco. You also want to make sure they empty the bladder. Did you know the bladder, if it's full or partially full, could falsely elevate blood pressure as much as 10 millimeters of mercury systolic? You want to make sure they're sitting down with their back supported, feet flat on the floor, and legs uncrossed. Uh, and, and you can't see me because this is a podcast, but I immediately uncrossed my legs. Why is all of this important? For years, my entire practice, I would always take the blood pressure when they're on the exam table. Research shows that they need to be sitting with feet flat on the floor with their arm, usually the left arm, propped up on a table. All right, so that's the patient prep. Next, I think about making sure our numbers are correct as the equipment. The number one reason of false having inaccurate measurements is an incorrect blood pressure cuff size. So usually it's making sure it's large enough. And most patients actually need a large cuff instead of, quote, the regular size cuff. So measuring and making sure we have more than one size cuff in the office. Also, this changed my practice in 2019. We are now advised, according to the evidence and the scientific statements, to use automated measurements. In other words, use the machine versus us using our own ears and stethoscope. So that changed my practice, that there's actually better evidence to say or better um, you get readings that are more likely to match out-of-the-office reading if it's automated. It's not about a lot of rooming staff think when we change now that we're exclusively automated, automated readings that we're questioning their ability to take accurate blood pressures. That's not the case. We do also place that cuff on the bare arm. So that equipment, to me, means making sure you don't push up that sleeve and create a tourniquet-like effect. Lastly is actually the measurement where you push the button. This means no talking. And Midge, you know me, I'm a talker, but we want to make sure the patients or the clinicians are not talking at all. We also, part of measurement is take blood pressure in both arms during that first visit and know which arm is higher. About 90% of folks have different measurements, not much more than 10% difference, but we're going to use the higher arm, record both readings, and use the higher arm then and for future measurements. The last thing, and there are two schools of thought making sure the numbers are correct. Um, I looked at a meta-analysis of whether the clinician, the rooming staff should be in the room or not when you do blood pressures. And Basically, there's a body of literature that says it's more accurate if no one else is in the room versus, and they set it so it automatically takes it three times versus not. Most clinic workflows sort of keep people in the room. So if the evidence is sort of split about that, we pretty much keep a clinician in the room. However, the experts say if somebody's highly anxious when their blood pressure is being taken, consider setting it to get the three readings and the person back out of the room. Um, if taking manually, the last thing is, if you find yourself where you're taking it manually, make sure you pump it up high enough, especially in older folks, so you don't miss that first true reading of the systolic because often it fades away and then come back stronger. I wanna go over two other things. We also wanna make sure those numbers outside the office are correct, and I'm gonna speak to this later, about home blood pressure monitoring. But the reason we need out-of-office readings are for two reasons. One, the traditional white coat hypertension. Up to 40% people can have that, where the blood pressure is higher in the office, where we traditionally think of wearing white coats, which by the way, we don't wear white coats in our high blood pressure clinic for that very reason. But we don't want to have over-treatment of patients or think it's higher than it really is. So we do need to know, is it higher in the office? But just as important is knowing if they have mask hypertension. 
where it's actually higher outside the office. It's like it's hiding. There's a mask when we're seeing the patients. The last thing is ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. We don't use that as much in the U.S., and some of that is related to the payment system. But if somebody has highly variable blood pressures and you're not sure where they really sit most of the time, we want to do ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and seeing that difference between what happens. All right, so to wrap that long spiel up, once you make sure the numbers are correct or you have a better idea, you could rule out whether it was just falsely elevated in the clinic and that's why they weren't under control. So we want to make sure, and in most cases, they are correct. But Mitch, let's go on to another topic. You know, a common cause of that difficult-to-control hypertension, two things, either not having enough medicine on board because they're not taking it, non-adherence, or maybe the treatment regimen is sort of subpar, suboptimal. Can you talk a little bit about non-adherence and then maybe throw it back to me and I'll talk about not having enough meds? But either way, either one, there's not enough in the system. Leslie, thanks so much for bringing that up. And I totally agree that my practice changed as well in 2019 to really rely on that automatic blood pressure machine and really getting good data to make clinical decisions. So before we talk about non-adherence, let's talk about the definition of adherence. The World Health Organization defines adherence as the extent to which a person's behavior corresponds with the agreed recommendations from a healthcare provider. So I'd say as NPs, we use motivational interviewing, we talk with our patients, right? We discuss and come up with an agreement on the, the treatment plan. So non-adherents are those patients who decide for whatever reason not to take it. Do you know that most of the time non-adherence is unintentional? It's really about forgetfulness or maybe not understanding that I have to continue on this medication lifelong. Some folks I've had will have the bottle and the bottle's empty. They think they're done, kind of like an antibiotic. Mistaken understanding of instructions when you titrate medicines is also a reason for non-adherence. So it's not a blame game. It's, again, working with the patient. So how can you tell as the provider if the patient's adherent or not adhering? This is a tricky situation, and you want to make sure you're non-judgmental in your approach to discussing this. So just ask the patient, hey, Leslie, are there times you think you might miss taking your blood pressure medicine? Because the literature indicates that 80% of higher adherence is actually good. Now, we want it to be higher, but, but maybe when Leslie goes on vacation, she forgets to take her medicine or left the pillbox at home. There are Obviously, more objective measures, you can ask the patients to bring in their pill bottles to their visit, and you can do pill counts, but you need to make sure they're using the most recent bottle, right? It's not a bottle that was sitting on the shelf. You can see with the pharmacy or even through your electronic health record, when was the last time they refilled the medication and picked it up at the pharmacy? And finally, there are biological measures that can be done to determine adherence, and that's by obtaining certain blood levels, and that's available for certain medications. Pill bottles that keep track of patients when patients open and close them, the container, often those I've seen them used in research studies more than general practice. But some strategies that can be used to overcome non-adherence, we'll talk about that in a little later, okay? So Leslie, let's get up to those difficult to control people because they're on suboptimal therapy. Can you describe kind of what that really means for suboptimal care? You were talking about non-adherence pills. We're talking about pills. Sometimes there's a transdermal like clonidine patch or something, but definitely not first line. Most meds are going to be oral meds and either they're not swallowing what's prescribed or what I'll cover is maybe the therapeutic regimen is just not stacked up for success. They're not on the right medicines at the right doses, quote unquote, to do the work. So suboptimal therapy, either from just incorrect meds, classes of meds, 
or incorrect doses or patient tolerances, in, in this case, intolerances, or there's something even called clinical inertia where providers, even though a patient's not reaching a treatment goal, they're still not making changes in that regimen. And actually, the research shows those highest at risk often are victims of clinical inertia. Now, some of that relates to you might have so many comorbidities that you're actually treating a different condition that day. But don't forget to go back and evaluate whether that patient is meeting their blood pressure goal. But so this is a reason why someone's not yet at control. It's always bothered me of why we, quote, call it difficult to control, because that makes me think the patient's being difficult. But really, this is us saying it's not truly resistant. So what we like to think about is the first line treatment is a RAS blocker you've mentioned, which is an ACE inhibitor or an ARB, plus a calcium channel blocker, plus a diuretic. Those combinations work best. And sometimes I make sure I explicitly tell patients that the average patient needs three or more medicines to get their blood pressure under control over time. Initially, they might not need that many. So it's very important that those three classes work together. Many clinicians don't prescribe a diuretic because they don't see fluid overload. And we're going to talk about that. But they do most often on a three-drug regimen need a diuretic. So let's keep moving. Once you've ruled out non-adherence and suboptimal therapy, think about the volume overload. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that in treatment, but um, the difficult to control volume overload is thinking about what type of diuretic. And I think I'll save that when we talk about treatment in a little bit. But mainly, you want to make sure they're on the right diuretic. So I'll go over that in a little bit. But also, interfering substances, sometimes they're not getting to goal because there's other things getting in the way, such as the most common things would be large doses of non-steroidals. And that may or may not include COX-2 inhibitors. So we always ask patients what they're taking for pain because they might not have listed those non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Any over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, and that can include large doses of aspirin beyond the daily dose of aspirin that both interferes with RAS blockers that we're trying to lower blood pressure, as well as on their own can raise blood pressure or affect the kidneys. A lot of alcohol can make blood pressure hard to control, difficult to control, uh, and I know you're going to talk about that with lifestyle. Oral contraceptives or oral hormone replacement some antidepressants, some things that mimic the sympathetic nervous system like diet pills, decongestants, or I hate to think about it, but cocaine, large amounts of cocaine can really raise blood pressure. We've seen a lot of that with heart failure, with hypertensive cardiomyopathy or stimulants. Less common things that interfere with blood pressure control, corticosteroids. As we see older patients with more musculoskeletal pain or more chronic lung disease that are prescribed lots of steroids periodically, that can really interfere with blood pressure control. And there's others, but those are the ones I'd like to think about. So Midge, now that we've sort of eliminated those difficult to control, talked about adherence, talked about suboptimal therapy, and maybe interfering substances, let's go right down that treatment algorithm and talk about maybe you can walk us through secondary causes. That's where we start looking at why someone could have truly resistant hypertension. Thanks, Leslie. I think before we get ahead, I also, when I think about substances, I think about things like energy drinks or things that come on the market. We'll talk a little bit about reducing caffeine, but caffeine in the broadest sense, right? People are consuming uh, different types of energy drinks that may increased blood pressure. So please don't forget to ask about that as well. So I know this is going to sound a little ridiculous maybe, but I use a mnemonic called CRAP, C-R-A-P, to really think about the potential secondary causes of resistant hypertension. The C can refer to congenital heart disease like coarctation of the aorta or Cushing syndrome. The R 
for renal, thinking about chronic kidney disease or things like renal artery stenosis. The A, I want you to think about aldosterone as in primary hyperaldosteronism. The P for pregnancy, even hyperparathyroidism or thyroid disease, or one that is rare, but we can't forget about pheochromocytoma. So Leslie, do you have anything else to add about assessing for secondary causes of resistant hypertension? Well, I love that acronym because, and I've used that before and people think, oh, wow, crap, but it makes you think of it. I try also to put this in perspective. When they come into our hypertensive clinic, usually because they're uncontrolled or because there's so many intolerances to medicines, for whatever reason, they can't get the patient to control. We think about secondary causes or about 5% of the reason you would have high blood pressure. So as a reason, those secondary causes go up in my clinic and the population we're talking about is resistant hypertension. They have a higher percent likelihood that secondary causes or factors are, are causing it, but also making it compounding the situation, making it harder to control. So what we usually see, now pregnancy, that's going to be figured out. It'll declare itself regardless. But I think the two things I'd like to just add on to is that sleep-disordered breathing. You had mentioned that that's often underappreciated. There's a lot more people that have sleep-disordered breathing than we think about. And you think about somebody that maybe they're doing more daytime somnolence or snoring, irregular breathing, doesn't always have to be a patient that has comorbid obesity. So just don't miss sleep disorder breathing. We know whether it's hypertension or heart failure, you don't want to miss that because it actually can get it under control, but also it can help decrease the bad things that happen, mortality and morbidity. But what we spend a lot of time in our clinic is testing for primary hyperaldosteronism. And a pearl for you as nurse practitioners or other clinicians, if you're in an ambulatory setting and concerned about, is my patient, do they have resistant hypertension? You can go ahead and order the preliminary screening, a blood test for this. And when they come to our clinic, it's very helpful if that's been done. If it hasn't been done, we always get it the first visit. And what this is, is a ratio of plasma aldosterone and compared to the renin. It's a ratio. They need to be seated for at least 30 minutes. That's not a problem because we usually see them in our clinic and they would have sat for 30 minutes. But the positive screen, and I always have to look this up, but when you get back the result, luckily they have the instructions there it's a screening test. If they positively screen greater a ratio greater than 30 or something if the plasma aldosterone concentration is 16 or higher, then it only needs to have a ratio greater than 20. I do not memorize that. I had it on a little note card for me, but we see that on the screening test. That screening test is exactly what it's called, screening. So if it's positive, they go on to have other tests, a confirmatory test, either imaging or something related to salt or saline, oral salt loading tests. Years ago, decades ago, we would do the salt loading, but really you do the primary screening test and then we send them for imaging. What I'd like to emphasize, the literature says, and we haven't seen this as often, but if the patient is hypokalemic, if the potassium level is low, you want to correct that before you do the screening. And actually, hypokalemia is a sign of primary hyperaldosteronism. That's very subtle because people can have it and have normal potassiums. So that hypokalemia, you want to look at for two reasons. It could be a sign of that, but also to correct that before you test that ratio. Another pearl is we don't start our secret agent, our secret med that we add as a fourth agent, which is an aldosterone antagonist, spironolactone or aldactone. I'll talk about that when we do treatment. But we don't add that until we do this test because it could falsely elevate it. So if they happen to already be on an aldosterone antagonist, 
we want to withdraw that for at least a month before we do this screening test. So you out there, clinicians, nurse practitioners, that is a screening test you can start with. And we always don't want to miss that. There's two things it could be if that test, both screening and confirmatory test, rules in. And actually, that's like finding a needle in a haystack. We might can reverse the cause of their hypertension. About 50%, it's due to an adenoma, which is usually bilateral. Uh, it's an adenoma, which means it can be removed laparoscopically. The, the providers I work with, they tell patients, let's we'll just pluck it out of there. Now, granted, most things aren't just plucked out of there. It sounds easy, <laughs> but it is a complete cure, and it actually can improve their blood pressure control. So that's sort of a victory. The others that have bilateral disease, it might be hyperplasia, and basically you just need to put them on the spironolactone or a plerinone that I was talking about. So the rare patient, I've only seen a few in my career that has this, and we determine if it can be an adenoma that can be removed, simple surgery, they say, or it could be treated with a more effective medicine. That's good to find. So let's move into now strategies. You had started with these strategies to overcome non-adherence. So Leslie, I have one quick question before we move on, and that's I'm the primary care provider going to order this screening test. Is it really a screening test that says uh, aldosterone-renin ratio? Is that what it's called? Okay. I, I believe that's part of the screening algorithm is look at what it's called in your electronic health system or the labs that you order to, because we know that sometimes labs are labeled differently. So as we continue to talk about resistant hypertension, I'm going to talk about some of the non-pharmacologic treatments. We've all learned this as we've been educated over time, but I think sometimes we think we're going to get more bang for our buck. And the whole goal in working with patients, sometimes I say, you know, I only want to change my lifestyle. I don't want to take medicines. But I think if we start thinking about things that they can do and they have ownership over, that would be really important. So the first, we think about diet. And whether it's heart failure or hypertension, the salty six are not your friend. If you think about, you know, breads and rolls, pizza, tacos, cold cuts, sandwiches, soups, those are all high in sodium. So just cutting back or cutting out those salty six can help lower the sodium in your diet. Believe it or not, following a diet that has less than 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day can lower your blood pressure as much as 14 millimeters of mercury. So that's a pretty significant amount. Now, you alluded earlier, Leslie, to limiting alcohol or that uh, high use of alcohol can contribute to resistant hypertension or difficult to control hypertension. And what does that really mean? Well, for men, it's less than two alcoholic drinks per day. And for women, it's one or less alcoholic beverage per day. And you really don't get a whole lot of bang for your buck on that, up to about four millimeters uh, of mercury. Now, smoking cessation, if we think about it, you've mentioned that earlier. Thank goodness, lots of folks have stopped smoking based on laws in different states but that can really help lower blood pressure. Being physically active, 150 minutes per week of moderate exercise, that comes out to be 20, 22 minutes a day. And what is moderate exercise? Well, the literature would say vacuuming and mowing the yard, but in any of the activities that you like to do, think about, I am moderately active if I can have a conversation in brief sentences without being this kind of breath. So that's a way for you to moderate. I like to play pickleball, doubles tennis, you know, things like that. So think about what you like to do in, in order to help uh, patients understand how to be physically active. Maintaining a healthy weight. You need to lose at least 10 kilos, about 22 pounds, for anywhere from a 5 to 20 millimeter mercury reduction in blood pressure. That's a lot of weight. That is challenging. 
especially as you age, it's harder to lose weight, especially when you have multiple comorbidities. So these are some of the non-pharmacologic treatments. Now, I want to get back to adherence. You know, for those folks that struggle with non-adherence, let's talk about what we as clinicians can do to help them adhere to their medication regimen. And that's things like maybe instead of TID or BID dosing regimens, we get them on daily doses. We encourage them to use pill boxes or even from their pharmacy, get pill packs if you're on a steady dose and you're not titrating medicine. I think we all understand that 90-day prescriptions means you only are refilling things, you know, three times in a year. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have to go to the pharmacy or think about my meds and refills every month. Really have an honest conversation about costs as a contributor to non-adherence. And a nice way to do that, again, is sometimes people have challenges affording their medications and may alter their doses. Is this something we can help get you on maybe perhaps generic medications or get you on a use a coupon to help reduce the cost of your meds? I am a big believer in using our cell phones and or any kind of smartphone to help remind me of whether it's the length of this podcast or when to uh, take a medicine or, you know, answer an email even. I think one of the practical things we can do as NPs is to talk to our patients about what's something you do every day. If you get up in the morning and you go for a walk or walk your dog, and that's when you take your medicine, as soon as you put the dog's leash up, or at night, I watch the news every night at this time, or I eat a meal at this time. So associating medication administration or taking your meds with an activity. Leslie, do you have anything to add about non-pharmacologic management of resistant hypertension? Mitch, I think those are really low-tech options to improve adherence, and I think they're great, and that's what I spend a lot of time talking to patients about, and some have, they pull out their smartphones and show me their reminders. I like the reminders to take it, but also... I don't know about you, but sometimes even if I was, I had an injured shoulder once and I couldn't remember, did I take a Tylenol the last time I walked into the kitchen or not? So I like those pill holders for two reasons. One, it makes sure you've filled them for the week and know if you're getting ready to run out so you don't have unintentional non-adherence. But the other is if you don't remember, did you take it five minutes ago when that show started or not? Or was that yesterday that I took it at at 6.30 p.m.? You can open that pill holder to say, oh, I did take it five minutes ago. It's the short-term memory that goes before the long-term memory. So I like the opportunity to see, did I follow those instructions or get distracted? The other thing about non-pharmacological things, you had talked about that, the lifestyle things, Being physically active, some of our patients are not able to do those 22 minutes a day. And there was research that came out a year or two ago, and even during COVID, um, even somebody that's older that didn't do a lot of activities, I think it was a study of 80-year-old women, and that was it. And they were very sedentary that to be in the study, but they got them any level of activity that you can raise it up just to move more, sort of like that slogan, just move it. And they were able just to move around their house. You and I have talked about this before. Moving around the house, walk for five minutes every hour or two before their favorite shows. And they were able to show not only did their blood pressure have benefits, and these are not necessarily resistant hypertension, but just for anybody with high blood pressure, just moving and getting activity more than you normally would is better than nothing because some are not going to be able to exercise 22 minutes a day. What I would like to add is the other non-pharmacological things. Believe it or not, being more engaged in your care. So if you implement home blood pressure monitoring, I had mentioned it, that helps to make sure your numbers are accurate. But research has shown home blood pressure monitoring or out-of-the-office reading, whether the patient does it, a family member does it, or they go and stick their arm into a machine at a pharmacist or something. But getting out-of-office readings 
keeps the patient more engaged. They're more likely to take their medicines and they're more likely to be engaged, as I said, in their care to have conversations. So if they will bring those readings in, we can see how well or how less well, how poor their blood pressure control is. So home readings, we encourage them, and I know I'm going to talk about um, next about medications, what we do to optimize therapy, but let's make sure the numbers at home see if there's an effect of when we do treat and how we do that when they leave the office, we'd like them to take daily blood pressure readings for about a week. After that, maybe pick two or three days a week to take it. And then right before their return appointment, be it virtual for telehealth or in person, if they'll take a week's worth every day. Now, each time, each day they take it, they want to take two readings a few minutes apart. We used to say three readings, but two is enough based on the literature. And we like for them to take it in the morning and in the evening. Now, if they say what time, it doesn't matter as long as they separate it by about six or eight hours. And it doesn't really matter whether they've just taken their meds or not, but just take the readings. We need to prepare them and clinicians that the numbers might be all over the place, but we're looking when they bring them in or if they send them in by telehealth communication, that this patient-generated data that we're looking are about half of them at goal or below that goal. And that's what we're looking for. You can get into a mistake, a clinician or a patient, if they see some high numbers and take an extra pill. We do not ever PRN take medicines, especially in cases of resistant hypertension, because you, you're always chasing it by the tail. So that's the first pearl. Now let's move on into the medications. I saw a recent study. Is it better to add on medicines or up titrate meds to a higher dose with what you've got? So first of all, when I optimize medication in our clinics and in the literature, the first thing I had mentioned that volume overload is often a reason why patients don't have their blood pressure under control either they're difficult to control or truly resistant. Either way, this is what you start with because the extracellular volume is the contributing factor. And it may be absolute where you can see it as peripheral edema, or it may be relative that you can't see it on physical exam. So the first step is if they're on a low dose thiazide to switch to a higher dose. For example, hydrochlorothiazide, if it's individually prescribed or part of a combination pill, if it's 12 and a half, bump that up to 25. That's the first go-to. Easy. Um, patients used to taking it. So that's first go-to. Now, granted, most are on 25. The next step is to convert to a more potent diuretic. In this case, thiazide-like would be chlorthalidone. If you're not already using chlorthalidone for anybody with hypertension, I would recommend that. Studies have shown converting to hydrochlorothiazide to chlorthalidone can get you as much as eight millimeter reduction in that systolic blood pressure. Now, to give you some context, each medicine you add, the most you get is usually about 10 millimeters of mercury for systolic blood pressure. So that one substitution which is low-cost chlorthalidone. It's harder to spell, Midge, when I used to have to write prescriptions, but luckily we're all now in electronic health records. But that is a longer-acting, more potent, with better cardiovascular risk reduction. All right, so that's a go-to. Third step, this is all within diuretics, so they're usually cheaper meds, but if they're on a thiazide, pay attention to the creatinine, or their estimated GFR. If the creatinine is elevated, like 1.5 to 1.8 or higher, you're gonna need a loop because they just can't do the work as a thiazide. Or if the estimated GFR is less than 30, you're gonna need to bump it to a loop. What I'd say about a loop, they're short acting, maybe, and you know this well with your background with heart failure, Midge, a loop, if it's 20 or 40 of furosemide, you know, that's fine once a day, but if you bump it up higher, at some point you need a twice a day. So that's the first way to intensify meds, 
patients usually, some, occasionally an older, older patient that has incontinence especially, they might be resistant to start a diuretic, but over time it's going to level off. But that's the first thing we usually see if patient's not on a diuretic. The second thing, you think about that chronic kidney disease. That's very common in most of our cardiac patients. So you want to make sure they're on that dietary sodium restriction you talked about. It's sort of non-intuitive to think they need to be on that diuretic as a chronic kidney disease. And a RAS blocker. We say make sure they're on a RAS blocker. And a lot of times people will start a RAS blocker and get spooked as a clinician because the creatinine bumps up. But our nephrologists that work hand in hand with us with resistant hypertension will say that expect a bump in the creatinine. As long as it's not more, you know, anything up to about 30% bump in a creatinine after starting a RAS blocker is fine. As long as that serum um, potassium is less than the five and a half. You don't want to be hyperkalemic and it will level off. You want to get labs, those electrolytes within a, two weeks if they have chronic kidney disease, but the RAS blocker is actually going to be nephroprotective to protect those kidneys. All right, so let's talk about it. We've optimized our diuretic therapy. We've considered whether they have chronic kidney disease, and those were the pearls. What we do in our clinic. They're on the RAS blocker. They're on a good diuretic. A calcium channel blocker you had mentioned to start us off. And a calcium channel blocker is a dihydropyridine typically or a non-dihydropyridine. And what we try and do, these can lower heart rate. So you want to probably be on like the amlodipines or philodipines, the ones that don't have as much heart rate lowering, especially if they're older. In our clinic, we will go to, okay, you've done all those things, and a lot of times those are done before we get them. So the literature and what we do in clinic is add another agent. And in this case, it's an aldosterone antagonist, that's spironolactone. So that's why you did that screening test. This is what we consider the magic bullet. This will get you a 25 milligram dose, will get you sometimes as much as 20 millimeters reduction in that systolic blood pressure, provided there's not a contraindication. Another one, and, and we won't go into all the different various ones, but another one that we see in our clinic in case you refer patients is we will put them on two different types of calcium channel blockers if they're truly resistant and we need a fourth or fifth agent. So for example, if they're on a uh, dihydropyridine versus a non-dihydropyridine, they'll be on two. So for example, they'll be on like the amlodipine or philodipine, and they'll be on like a diltiazin. So two different types of subclasses of calcium channel blocker. So there's other ones that maybe we can talk about later, but that's basically the um, dihydropyridines, the amlodipine or philodipine, or the non-dihydropyridines like the diltiazin or verapamil. Now, what did you not hear me mention, Midge? Something well, you use a lot in heart failure. What is another course? Yes. Years ago, that was one of our go-to, but now we know beta blockers are not in that space, for especially for resistant hypertension. So, and I'm going to punt it back to you, but I want to say something about beta blockers. So they are not one of the first-line therapies, but you will see us use a combined alpha-beta blocker if we need a fourth or fifth agent. Or you and I have talked about sort of a gift with purchase. If they have coronary heart disease or coronary artery disease, same thing, or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, if we're treating them with a FDA-approved beta blocker, if we can get blood pressure lowering and the other comorbidities, we use like that Carvedilol with alpha-1, beta-1, beta-2. If they have reactive airway disease, we can go with a metoprolol as you use the extended release. But that's the really the role of beta blockers. So Midge, we've talked about some traditional roles and some of the medications and what we do with diabetes. I didn't mention, make sure they're on a RAS blocker chronic kidney disease, make sure they're on a diuretic and a RAS blocker. What's on the horizon? What's new? Do you know of any emerging therapies for treating resistant hypertension? 
I'm so glad you mentioned that, Leslie, because renal denervation therapy is one of the emerging therapies that we need to keep our eye out on um, to see what the clinical trial results really show as another therapeutic option for resistant hypertension. But let's again pause for a moment and think about the physiology because our renal nerves regulate both blood pressure and fluid volume, and you addressed fluid volume earlier. Renal nerves are, have a sympathetic or efferent nerve, and then the sensory or the afferent nerves. Now, we're really focused on those efferent nerves because they're the ones that increase vascular resistance and secrete renin, both of which we're targeting to reduce blood pressure. So what is renal denervation? I mean, I'll be honest, I had to look back at the clinical trials that have been done, but to really understand it, but renal denervation is a minimally invasive procedure that uses both radiofrequency and ultrasound to ablate the renal nerves to prevent those responses of increasing vascular resistance and renin secretion. Who would possibly be eligible to undergo a procedure like this? Well, it's for individuals with resistant hypertension who have an office systolic blood pressure greater than 160 despite three antihypertensive meds one of which is a diuretic. And you've already excluded all those secondary forms of hypertension, remember crap, uh, as well as white coat hypertension. And the thing I wanted to be able to share with our listeners is that there have been several clinical trials, I'll just name a few, Simplicity 1 and 2. You know, they looked at these patients, spiral hypertension, on med, right, to really look at how comparing renal denervation therapy with sham therapy, and I know you'll talk about that in a minute, uh, impacts reducing blood pressure. But the most recent is called spiral distal renal denervation. It was a global clinical study completed in December of 22. The results are pending. It was done both in the U.S. and Europe. And, and I'll be eagerly awaiting the results of this trial to see which patients are best served by renal denervation therapy. Just for listeners, I think it's important to understand that clinicaltrials.gov is a great site to go for when you're thinking about things like resistant hypertension and maybe I need to refer my patient to a center. So Leslie, could you add a few more things that you've learned about renal denervation? Well, what I've learned, and actually this is very perfect timing today, the morning that we're recording this podcast, there was something that came from the American College of Cardiology, a summary of pooled analysis from three studies that looked at this renal denervation. So I'm looking at this because in our clinics, we refer patients to clinical trials. We have one in the area, and it happens to be at our clinic as well, that they do have an ongoing clinical trial. So right now you can refer patients by looking at that clinicaltrials.gov or some of the academic medical centers that offer this. And usually I had to learn who does this. It's interventional cardiologists in most cases. That's who does it at our center in combination with the referring provider from a hypertensive clinic. That can be a nurse practitioner, a physician, or PA. And we refer them. Every time I hear a talk on this or learn about it, they have to do two clinical, major clinical studies before something is goes up for FDA approval, whether it's a drug or device, and they have to show benefit. And so far, this looks very promising. And this pooled analysis of about 500 patients, these aren't huge volumes because these are patients that need to be on max meds and they're still uncontrolled. And the patients that I've seen of ours that we've referred sometimes are patients that can't tolerate a usual drug class or more than one. So it's not just that the max meds aren't working, but for some reason there's contraindications or they had major allergic reactions. And so the patients we refer are already a subgroup or a small group. So to have three clinical trials with just 500, that's actually a lot. And the average age across those trials was about 54 that's the average. So these are not your older 80-year-old isolated systolic hypertension. About 70% in the trials are men. Now, I'm not aware of that that's the ones that are more likely to qualify 
or is that the usual way clinical trials end up where it's more men? I'm not sure. I don't want to speculate. But what I learned about this is I always wondered when you do a device trial, do people, because they all get it, do they start changing their lifestyle too? But you had mentioned in these studies, they're very um, rigorous in the fact that they have a sham arm, quote unquote, versus not. That means the patient goes in for a procedure and they don't know if the little zapping of those nerves that you explain are done or not. So it's minimally evasive with radio frequency and ultrasound, and they come out and they're blinded. I don't know if the hypertensive specialist is blinded, but the patient's blinded to see the effect. The other thing that I'd like to point out is they're seeing some really good results. You know, at two months, they're seeing on average about eight and a half millimeter reduction. That might not sound like a lot to you, but anything that can reduce systolic by that amount, be it switching one type of diuretic to another that I mentioned, or in this, that has mortality and morbidity benefits, okay? The other thing, those effects are lasting beyond a few months. Now, this is promising. What we'd like to know is how durable this is and the clinical impact over time. So longer term, how it lasts. And then if it's approved after clinical trials for large scale use, who else might be potential for it? So that's a lot of information. But you know, a, a, a similar question is I get asked a lot is when do you refer to a specialist? Because one way to get renal denervation information or to get in a clinical trial is to go to a specialist. But a more um, probably applicable question to the average nurse practitioner is how do I know when to refer them to our clinic? And that can be a nurse practitioner or a cardiologist or a nephrologist. We have hypertensive specialists where it's cardiologists, nephrologists, myself as a nurse practitioner that has extra skills in adult education, as well as a clinical pharmacist. We're a team. Um, but the literature says and the guidelines say the outcomes definitely improve when you send a patient with resistant hypertension to a hypertensive specialty clinic. And so there are two things that the literature says. When a secondary cause of hypertension is suspected, or, and or, if the blood pressure is remaining elevated in spite of six months of therapy. So those are the two indications that I want to encourage you. We don't want to keep your patient forever, but bring us in on the case. And so, Midge, as we're time to wrap, we're nearing the hour. Do you have anything else you'd like to add as we wrap the podcast? Leslie, I think it's great that we've really kind of taken a deep dive into resistant hypertension. And I just want to remind all the listeners, you know, no matter what your point of contact, we as nurse practitioners have not only an opportunity, but an obligation to identify the patients with hypertension and even resistant hypertension. Identify them earlier, start our evaluation, start our treatments, maximize and refer, just like Leslie said, you know, those patients who have been on targeted medical therapy for six months and you cannot get their blood pressure in control. I just want to say on behalf of Leslie and myself, thank you so much, Eve, for inviting us to talk to all of our listeners about a topic that's really important to both of us. Well, thank you so much, Midge and Leslie. It's been a pleasure listening to you and gaining your perspective and insights on this important topic. To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your practice. Join AAMP, your national professional association, and add your voice to that of more than 120,000 MPs nationwide. Membership gives you access to so many benefits, including tools and resources for your practice, and the AMPC Center, which offers a comprehensive library of CE activities for MPs of all specialties and experience levels. Exclusive discounts and many free activities are yours as an AMP member to help you complete state licensure requirements and earn the credits needed for recertification. I urge you to become an AMP member today. 
I'm also excited to share that the 2023 AAMP Fall Conference will be held in Austin, Texas, home to the AAMP National Headquarters on September 7th through 10th. Earn up to 18 contact hours of CE credit in person or select the on-demand conference option, which will be available September 13th to October 18th. AMP members save at least $175 on conference registration fees. Additionally, you may claim CE credit for this program by entering 1210CE in the code prompt. That's 1210C like Charlie, E like Echo in the code prompt. Then complete the post-test and evaluation. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes. And thank you for listening. Thank <laughs> you.